0: Welcome to Richard Helpie's Common Bridge, the fiercely nonpartisan discussion that seeks policy solutions to issues of the day. Rich is a successful entrepreneur in the technology, health, and finance space. He and his wife, Leslie, are also philanthropists with interest in civic and artistic endeavors with a primary focus on medically and educationally underserved children. Welcome to the Common Bridge. We've got a great guest today. You'll recognize him, actor writer playwright singer and a really great icon of our times in jeff daniels jeff i really appreciate you being here and spending some time i know you're really busy these days
1: I'm, i might i am but it's it's uh happy to do this
0: great today we want to talk about the arts and specifically the performing arts we've missed them i've missed them it's the biggest thing during the pandemic besides being apart from family and friends It just kind of feels like the soul was ripped out of our society. We couldn't go to a play. We couldn't see live music. We couldn't go see a film with other people. And I just thought about how audiences might be reacting to that and the artists themselves. And that came to a screeching halt. And So today on The Common Bridge, our guest, Jeff, is unquestionably qualified to talk about this. Now, Jeff, I think you've been in about 80 feature films. I hear your voice doing voiceovers in various places. You've been nominated for a Tony Award on Broadway for Gods of Carnage. You've won an Emmy for your work at Network. And what our audience might not know is that you're also an exceptional playwright. You've authored scripts, you've written musicals, you tour with your guitar, and you sing. And by the way, audience, this is an actor that can sing and tell great stories. And he actually has stories about actors that cannot sing, and they're, they're quite entertaining. And most recently, you've won critical acclaim for your performance as Atticus Finch in To Kill a Mockingbird. And of course, the founder of the renowned Purple Rose Theater in Chelsea, Michigan. So Jeff, again, welcome. I know our audience knows a lot about you from the professional side, your public work, but you've also been a great booster for your hometown and you've gotten involved with other causes and you're very strong in your personal relationships, long-term friendships and such. Anything you'd like to share with our audience before we dive into what we're going to talk about today in terms of performing arts?
1: No, you covered it.
0: That was like this is your life with Ralph Edwards. That was yeah. <laughs> that was good. That was pretty much pretty much
1: everything. Yeah. yeah.
0: So you've been busy. So you've been you've been working, and that's that's good. I am working. I am working, and I think one of the things back
1: to your earlier comment about the arts and audiences' reaction to not having them. There's also those of us who are in the arts who have spent our lives in the arts. Uh, they pulled the plug. And, um, as my agent said, when the pandemic hit, he goes, now I know how to get you to stop working through a (laughs) pandemic and over the year, and it was a year, certainly away from acting that now that I'm back in it and we've been shooting this series for Showtime, uh, called American Rust. We've been shooting it since March 1st and we're, you know, this is June. So we're four months in seven weeks to go. I forgot that I missed it or I realized that I missed it. And why why do I miss it? I mean, I mean I could retire. I, you know, I've had a good run and you know you and I, and going into the pandemic, I was thinking, boy, I'd I'd love to be finished with this. Go out with Atticus Finch. You know, Ted Williams hits a home, runs, gets in the dugout, goes to his car. Do that. But I think the thing that's common. Between what the audience, I, I have a feeling, will return to because they miss it, and what the artists will return to because they miss it, is that when you do great art, whether it's a song, a book, a movie, a play, whatever it might be, you're more than you. I've always said, you know, when I'm when I become Atticus, when I become Harry Dunn and Dumb and Dumber, when I become Frank Griffin and Godless, I'm more than just me. And I think that's what happens when people get inside a theater, in my case, like with To Kill a Mockingbird, and they shut the doors behind them, and they are transported. And it's great art that does that. You can stand, I went, I remember shooting, what was I, no, I was doing some press in Paris, and I went to the Louvre. I got to go to the Louvre. I've never been there, got to say it, got to do it. And I stood in front of the Mona Lisa, which is, not big. I mean, it's like this. It's not, it's not, you think it, it's not. And you just get pulled in and the smile and the half smile and the look and the eyes and the way that it, that the painting was captured. What it does is it pulls us out, up into something else and we experience life more fully. That's what the arts can do. You don't have to do the arts. But I think you're less than you could be if you kind of gave yourself over to art that is well done and takes you beyond your insignificant self, which is what it comes down to. I think I think the arts gives us significance, understanding, and uh, it's, like, it's like getting wings. We can't fly, but when you stand in front of great art or you experience great art, yes, you can. It gives you wings.
0: Indeed, and and I, I understand what you're saying about the Mona Lisa and the David. Clearly things that leave you speechless, left me speechless. And I think you enjoy a reputation of being really well prepared for your roles. And I've had the pleasure and the occasion to see you perform a number of times. And when you were doing Blackbird, that to me was so extraordinary. I don't want to see it again, by the way. Um, because it, that was very powerful. And I, and I think they're bringing it back with, with a different cast, but it's that kind of range where, when I see you perform, you're into that character and To Kill a Mockingbird was a great rewrite of this very, very powerful book and play about our time. And it has so much relevance to today and the 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 treatment based on what a person of one color might say versus what a person of another color might be saying. And I think the way that the writers worked it was extraordinary. And you and the cast members deserve all the accolades that you're receiving. Now you ended your run with To Kill a Mockingbird, true?
1: Yes, I ended it once
0: yes is there something that you can share with us or it's news to come
1: no it's been announced uh it was announced i believe last week uh so it's 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 new and it wasn't for sure but it got done and there were a bunch of reasons to go back one i didn't feel i had to i had done it for a year eight shows a week for a year i didn't miss a show i was cal ripkin jr 415 shows Never missed, which is, I mean, there are people who did that. There were two other cast members in *In To Kill a Mockingbird who also didn't miss. Uh, it's a long haul. It's a slog. It's a marathon. And I just wanted to, I had a feeling that might be the last one. And um, television, you know, premium cable, prestige drama is what they're calling it. Is calling me, and they're calling me a lot, and and I really enjoy working in front of the camera. So I didn't I didn't artistically need to go back. I had done it every way I could think of. Good night. But with the pandemic, with Broadway shutting down, being a part of the reopening, uh, if we can get the show up to what I remember it being, which is a lot of work, because you're going to have some of the members of the cast who are from the original production, some who are not. A few that are new and we only have four weeks so i don't want to put Mm. up the show again and have it be creaky uh not as good so that was an issue i was able to get celia keenan bolger back as scout i would not do it without her she's essential it's a two-headed monster to kill a mockingbird it's not just atticus and celia won the tony award for it so i had to have her so the producers made that happen Now, it's also what Atticus Finch means today in today's America, post George Floyd, post all the wokeness. Also, being aware now of white privilege, white blindness. You know, an African American friend of mine, Thornetta Davis, who we did a song together called I Am America. And Thornetta, you know, I was talking about the Statue of Liberty, and she says, Yeah, we only see the back of that. Oh, boy. I said, What do you, yeah, it's pointed towards Europe, Ireland. England, France, Germany, not pointed towards Africa. And we'd been there for 200 years when they erected it or a hundred years, no, 200 years, 200 years as slaves. And this, and so I was like, that was just, it's just perspective. When you're brought up in a small town, it's, that's white. That's what, you know, that doesn't mean you're a racist, but that, that does mean you have to, you know, that, that, that there's a whole other side to American history, and certainly the original sin of the Founding Fathers is now at a crossroads, I think. So what can my going back as Atticus Finch do to help that? And, I, and as long as there's systemic racism out there, uh, or that white people who need to come to Jesus on this, then it's relevant. And as I went through the script, I was going through it yesterday. And uh and it's and what what Harper wrote, what Aaron wrote, it still resonates. It may be 1934, Makeham, Alabama, but you know, when the judge talks about Boo Radley, oh, we're not gonna pin the murder on him. Everybody thinks he's a gang member, everything thinks he's a father, stabbed his father with scissors. He's he's gonna end up in a mental facility. And what's that get us? You know, and you look at that going, oh, yeah, that's social media. That's cancel culture. They're going to cancel Boo Radley. Got to blame somebody. So I think it's going to resonate even more. The other thing is that I didn't think that we could ever match, whether it's going back to Atticus or some other Broadway play, that I would ever match the electricity uh, I felt nearly every night doing that show, certainly leading up to opening. It was electric. You were the toast of the town. You were the number one show on Broadway. You were it for a year. You can't top that. You got the critics. You got the audiences. You got the, the dignitaries coming backstage. To Robert De Niro sitting in my dressing room. That's not going to happen again to that level. So go out with a home run. But now with the pandemic and post everything racially that we've been going through, I'm interested to see what that audience is. You know, they've talked about it's the roaring 20s all over again, 100 years later. I think we're going to find out. The audiences could be so ready for this. And so ready, as you were saying earlier, for any kind of live human connection, which I think is what the arts can do when you shut the doors and you go, uh, that I think it
0: could be a great three months. So I said yes. I'm happy that you did do that. I had occasion to travel to New York and see the show. As you know, my wife and I enjoy Broadway, and uh, I thought it was great. And if I, if you don't mind me telling my audience the uh, happenstance that did not know it, but a woman who taught my children in school uh, English and who taught the book for over thirty years saw the show, and we just hap- she just happened to be there at the same time, and she raved about it and said it was very true. Lucky the- us.
1: Yeah, <laughs> they, they didn't. Not all of them did. I remember no. the first two or three previews. It was like walking out for an audience and going, one, he's not Gregory Peck, <laughs> and two, they're all holding the book. That was the first three shows. So the fact that she she liked what what
0: Aaron did with Harper is wonderful. Yeah, and 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 the other thing that she said was. Oh, that that line they had the judge say, that was one Scout said. So, like, everything got distributed, and I know there's something about the way the program was put on because they couldn't put so much on this character or this kid to do it correctly. You know, that's over my head. All I can say is that I had an expert there that said it's true to the book who has no public voice or axe to grind, just somebody that, that has taught it for over 30 years.
1: Yeah, first thing Aaron did... Well, the, the trial in the book doesn't happen till I'm going to say, two-thirds of the way through the book.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: First thing that Aaron did was uh, we open with the trial. We're in the trial. And then we keep jumping back and forth and back and forth. and back. So that just, just that alone, you could see books just flying up in the, in the audience as they were pitching them going, Well, they've ruined it.
0: <laughs> well, other than the uh, Iron Man piece, how'd you do on developing that accent? That had to be a bit of a hurdle.
1: Uh, it, no, it was it was um you know Peck didn't really have one in the movie. Peck kind of did Peck and you know and I, as going into it, you're gonna well, what are you gonna do differently? It can't just be different. you have to really commit yeah no, let's go for the accent. So I found a guy named Frank Johnson who was a federal judge in the 60s. He put KKK guys in prison. Uh, he was he was his court was located a federal judge in Northwest Alabama. So as a judge, he was putting Klan members in jail. So he was not well liked. And he had an accent that was just hard R's and, you know, registrar and uh, uh, court of law. I mean, that was Frank. And so I went into one of the final workshops. I remember I hadn't really been doing anything. And uh, there were a couple New York cast members that uh, had been around forever and uh, they, for you know, they assume once you go to Hollywood that you're tainted and poisoned forever and and that the New York actors, the stage people are the, you know, the the grit of of the industry. And and yeah, and, and there are there are Hollywood people that come on to Broadway for three months, try to win a Tony and leave. They can't do eight shows a week. They're tired. They're inconsistent. And so I could feel that a little bit. And so I was just doing me kind of walking around with a script for about three weeks. And then we sat down to, to read it through and, or something, another read through with rewrites. And I just dropped the Alabama accent on them, which was me going, we're all going to be doing accents. Here's mine. And so I remember the couple of the cast members who looked over and said, you know, and I, it was like, it was a challenge. Let's go. We had a dialect coach, uh, Kate Wilson, who came in, and, and she made a great point. She said, Frank Johnson. She said, yes, I've listened to him. He's from the 50s and the 60s, and uh, he grew up with radio. And mm-hmm. once you have radio, you now hear accents from all over the world. It's whatever you know shows were on at the time um, that you're not hearing your Alabama accent anymore. You're hearing, hearing something else. So he had changed his accent. We're going to do a 1930s Alabama accent, so softer R's. And so I worked with her a little bit, was able to get on top of it. And and she was happy, which was great, because that was one less thing I had to worry about
0: going into opening. And when we talk about opening, it's just not like, oh, we're going to throw a switch and we're open. There had to be some challenges. Like if you don't know when you can have opening night, how do you know when to do all the other things you need to do before you put on a production? You can't sell a ticket if you don't know what date it's going to be. You can't audition a cast. That had to be a tremendous amount of work and coordination. And I'm going to guess, like anything else behind the scene, there's probably a lot of chaos and you know missed handoffs and the like.
1: Oh, my God. Uh, and, and it's a big show. It's a musical. At the Schubert Theater, it's got, as you know, it's got set pieces coming in. It's got they're hydraulicking in from the side. And you walk up on, suddenly you're on the porch. And things can... <coughs> stop you know the train can go off the tracks and over the course of the year we probably had four or five of those things please stop the show actors leave the stage actors leave the stage we'll we'll temper we'll halt temporarily they bring the curtain down stage hands come in get the thing back on (laughs) and you go and you go out there looking up a lot you know waiting for so that's just that's just stuff that happens on a on a big show we know we knew opening night a year out. So that gives everybody on the production side and the actors the time to get ready for a December 13th opening, I believe it was. So we had three readings and two readings and two 10-day workshops in the winter and spring, and then started rehearsals in mid-Sep, Labor Day. Yeah, mid-September, six weeks of rehearsals. And we're still finding our legs, and then we go into tech, which is ten days of stop, fix a light, fix a sound cue, back up. Stop. It's the actors lose it for ten days. You, we, you are not. You're just chess pieces on a board being moved around to make sure the lighting is right uh, and other things. And it's and it's essential. And then you get a couple runs at it, and then you start previews, which were November first before the December thirteenth we did 45 previews before that opening night and that's a lot and that includes they're like double headers every day because if you're doing a show at night you're also rehearsing in the afternoon because there are rewrites is there is there a a date set for the reopening for the reopening our first show is october 5th that's all i know so as far as i'm concerned especially with the internet that's opening night. How is New York? I have not been
0: there since the pandemic. And
1: I hear it's busting at the seams. You know, I hear it's that people are just out. They're just out. I mean, it's uh, the people that I know that are living there are just going, wow, it's exciting. It's great. And the tourists aren't even here yet, which, you know, some of the diehard New Yorkers enjoy.
0: Yeah. Well, you know, look, New York, uh, I always loved Midtown, and always loved Broadway and the and the bustle, and a little little bit of work on Wall Street and such. And uh, it literally is a city you don't have to sleep if you don't want to. There's been a lot of publicity about it that just hasn't been good. But you know, I'm one that's very skeptical of the news reporting services because they have their thing they want to tell you about, you know, versus what's really happening on the ground. And you know, you couldn't have a Broadway reopening even with a handful of shows, if people couldn't get safely into their hotels and restaurants and whatever else they're doing during the day while they're waiting to see the show. But you haven't been back there yet? No, but all indications are Roaring Twenties. That's great. Jeff, a topic very near to your heart and has become very near to my heart is the Purple Rose Theater. For those people that don't know what the Purple Rose Theater is, Jeff founded this off-Broadway quality professional theater in his hometown of Chelsea, Michigan. It enjoys a, a tremendous reputation as an artistic venue, 168 seats, three sides around. And if you've listened to Jeff talk about the way that the audience, you step out of reality for the time of that show, I've experienced that many times at the, at the theater. And, and the regional theaters don't have the infrastructure and they don't have the economic backing that the big professional theaters do. Yet, like everybody, they got shut down and shut down hard for the pandemic. How are things looking over at the Rose right now?
1: We're okay. We're going to survive it. Uh, we held on to people uh, for as long as we could, longer than most. And um, now we're down to four people that uh, we felt were <laughs> essential to reboot. And we had done well with fundraising and with box office. I had done some live stream concerts that raised a lot of money that that allowed us to hang on to those people so that when we do open the doors again, and we are starting to rehire now, what we had before will continue. And these people are key to that. We're going to downsize a little bit. I think one of the things that the theater needs to do is... uh, I want it to exist when i'm not here anymore and that the four people who are in there now aren't here anymore either it has to sustain itself for the community for the greater good of the southeastern corner of michigan it's a it's a destination now and it's the arts at a professional level so we have the protocols we have the policies we have the how to do what we do is all there ready to go being passed on to another group and uh now we're going to put that group together uh we're going to diversify uh we've got a whole diversity program now uh that that really is we're, we're finding and developing and reading and getting ready
0: to produce playwrights of color and it's time we want to lead the way in that well well to be fair you haven't been shy or the purple Rose theater has not been shy about taking on uh, some of the most sensitive issues of the day. You're- no,
1: we we. I, I feel proud about yeah. what we've done. Uh, you know, we we. Our door has been open for 30 years. I was raised that way. My dad introduced me to a guy named Herb Pearson in town. I was nine years old, maybe. I walked into my house, and there's an African American man sitting at our kitchen table with my dad. And my dad said, "Jeff, I'd like you to meet a friend of mine, Herbie Pearson. He and his family just moved to town." That was all I needed to hear. My dad took him around town and introduced him to all his white friends as his friend. My friend, Herbie Pearson. I think he helped him get a job. That was my dad. My dad was Atticus. So that's been ingrained in me. But, you know, we opened the Purple Rose. We're in a predominantly white small town and we're, we're encouraging, but we didn't reach out. So post George Floyd, got it. We're going to reach out. We're gonna grab you. You think you can write? Great. Let's get all the African American playwrights, Hispanic playwrights, gender, transgender play. I don't care. You want to write? Let's put you in the program. We got a year of this pandemic. Let's start to work on that. Let's develop actors. Let doors wide open, folks, and they're coming, which is great. We're gonna be a better theater because of it,
0: and the audiences will be better for it. And uh, it's 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 time it's time. If my statistics are correct, I think 5% of the writers in Hollywood are black and 4% are women. So
1: yeah, give them six months, Rich. I mean, you can see it coming. All you got to look is as television commercials, every, every ethnicity, every color, every, gen, it's all there. And I think it's, it's culture gets ahead of politics sometimes. And around, uh, Ron Brownstein wrote a book called rock me on the water. And in it, he makes the case for Coming out of the 60s, the culture was ahead of Nixon and all of that, and it became more open and all of that. That's his theory. And, and I, I I, think it's coming. I think there's a new America coming, and the arts should lead the way, and uh, it's not going to be the way it was. It just
0: isn't. To your point, I think people are fed up and disgusted and frustrated, which is one of the reasons I started doing this show. They're not getting the answer from the Democrats. They're not getting the answer from the Republicans. People look at news reporting and they expect that they're being lied to or misled. And we've had people on the show that have explained that business model of picking your audience and then continually outraging them in order to draw eyeballs and clicks and advertising. And as long as I've been doing this show, when people say, well, what's it about? And I say, oh, it's fiercely nonpartisan, policy-oriented discussion, and we actually read legislation. They go, oh, wow, we need that. I haven't had anybody go, hey, why would I need that if I have, and I'm not going to name any of fill in the name of your favorite villain from the wherever you are, happen to be on the spectrum. But I, but I share your optimism that we can get to a better day. And as you know, I'm working with some people that have done a couple of movies that have some things in the pipeline right now just to get human stories out that really cross all lines and, frankly, lines that shouldn't be there. And I'm so glad you mentioned your father's influence on you because we are recording this today on Father's Day. And happy Father's Day to you. And what today, Jeff, could you say is the best role that you've ever had in the world or on stage or film or any place?
1: You know, the most important one, of course, is the family. And to the degree that the father makes an impact on that family unit is is the most important thing to me. It always has. That's why I moved back to Michigan instead of moving to L.A. in the 80s. I just moved home. I wanted to raise a family there and have my family there and to see my kids grow up. and. um uh, now they're in their 30s, and there are three grandkids, which is nice. Um, you know, one of the great things about being a grandparent is that you no longer have to listen to other grandparents tell you how great grandparenting is. <laughs> and and it is. It's everything they say. I'm not there all the time. I'm working. I'm gone. I'm going to go to Mockingbird, so I'm not going to be around the grandkids. You know, like Gramp in the chair waiting for him to come over and pull his finger. I'm not. I'm not around as much. But I'll tell you what's a joy that I never saw coming was watching my, in this case, two boys presently become fathers, become young parents to care for their daughters or their son, to talk to them in a way that. Oh my God, I remember that, and it's and it's the cycle of life, and just to be present and
0: around. To see that is is glorious. It really is. you, you know, Jeff, I I share that in uh, watching my son and daughters uh, become parents, and and I look at that, I go, did we do that? I get, we must have. I, this makes me tired, but I, I the best job I've ever had is being the grandfather, and and, and also I can wear a hat now. I, I wear a hat you know, mostly for sun protection because I just don't have enough hair anymore, but it's, it's the, it's the best job I've ever had. Jeff, we kind of touch a little bit on, on government and federal, state, municipal, any support or, or things that would make life easier or more difficult for the arts. Like, I don't know if in your time or, or with your, you know, professional peers, have you ever walked into someone and go, really? we can't do that, or really we have to do that, or hey, wow, this is great, look at this kind of support we're getting. Is that an, uh, integrated at all with any of the policy decisions that get made? Something we talk about on Common Bridge, and I, I'm not aware of any, I just wondered if, if you were. You mean if we do this, we'll raise more money? For example, they, you know, they that there was a regulation on, uh, if you're going to put a theater here, you've got to put in more parking, or, you know, you... You're going to be subject to, you know, certain law. Or, you know, are there, you know, support to the arts? I know we have the National Endowment for the Arts and various, you know, state groups help support it. And I think people would agree that that's a necessary thing because patrons and box office sales won't cover. And it takes everyone at large to be able to contribute to the support. Otherwise, people are going to get shut out. And art can't be this thing that embraces the whole society if everyone can't get in. So if you were going to advise the governor of the state of Michigan or the president of the United States, what would you tell them you're looking for?
1: Well, it's hard to change people's minds if they only want to watch American Idol and the keep up with the Kardashians. I can't help you. But if we were just going to go for profit, then we would run the most popular play we could every time. Mm -hmm. and run it for as long as we could because then it's just about the money it's about getting everybody paid and making money and that's what it's about look at us we made a profit we're success and what the not-for-profit theater does or even places like the ark in ann arbor not not for profit uh music venue it's a little bit like netflix hulu and, and hbo and all those things they don't have to have a great opening weekend as a movie they can do something like Godless, which is a Western, mm-hmm. which no movie studio would do now because Westerns don't sell. They don't make a big profit anymore. So they've stopped doing them. But a Netflix can do Godless, and they know that people who like Westerns will pick that, mm. and there's a niche. You were great in that. What exactly was the body count in Godless? Personally, I, I, I was in double digits. I know that. <laughs> uh, sometimes in one scene. Um, But the not-for-profit, it allows us to take chances. It allows us to push you. It allows us to challenge you. It allows us to tell you a story that you haven't heard before or seen somewhere else. You're just seeing it again. Uh, Reruns. We're not doing reruns. Uh, We want you to sit down and know nothing about this and lights go down and off we go together. And we want to take you someplace that you think you know, but you're going to know even better when you're done having seen that I mean, Flint, the play I wrote, Flint, fantastic. And we didn't say anything because you know the water was a problem and Snyder was in trouble and and everybody was screaming and yelling and and a lot of people were dying. And movie star is going to write a play about Flint. Oh God, here he's going to go after Snyder. I I mentioned him once just in passing, just as a reference, and and, and nothing to do with anything that he may or may not have had to do with that. The play was about systemic racism, and it was written after Michael Brown was killed in Ferguson, Missouri, after Trayvon Martin, after Dylan Roof. And it wasn't going to be, you know, Hollywood liberal takes a run at Snyder about the water. The water was a metaphor for a city that had been forgotten when the car companies moved out and this is what is left, and i had read carol anderson's white rage versus black advancement among other books and it was it was i i was speaking to it before people were speaking to it after george floyd and the i remember the first couple previews people came down not no and a lot of people from flint came down that first weekend and a couple said we're like escanaba we thought we were gonna you were gonna make fun of us and they were rocked at a middle and we'd had talkbacks. We had a middle-aged auto worker who had been forgotten and dumped. And he just, he started doing the talkback and commenting about, he said, that's, that's, and he just started crying. Um, we hit, we hit a nerve with that. And, and, but because we're not profit, we can run that thing for six weeks. We can take a chance that maybe some people aren't going to like it. And some people sure as hell didn't. But we don't care. That's what we do. And if you were to sit there for the 90 minutes it took, you might have come out a little different, maybe just angrier. But certainly a lot of people came out
0: and started to look at that situation a little bit differently, which is all you ever want. Jeff, I think you've said it there. and In fact, you know, my brand promise for the Common Bridge is that everybody should find something to not like in every episode because it's real easy in these times to go get affirmation, to, to take your preset conceptions, your outrage buttons and go get them fed. And you know exactly, people know exactly where to go. If you've got this persuasion or that persuasion, there's, that's, the business.
1: Sorkin was talking about that in a newsroom. We we were mentioning that in newsroom quite a bit before it was popular. And sure enough, here we are.
0: But I was going to compliment on Flint, the humanization of all the characters and that arc from this, you know, really unique period in history when United States automakers had 75% of worldwide market supply and car was king. And you know general motors was the largest employer and from that peak the devastation to everybody then how things splintered and i thought the way you guys picked it up in willow run now that wasn't one you wrote david mcgregor wrote that
1: no we had we, i forget who wrote it but but it was a really it was a
0: great show it was about a about great the, show the
1: riveters and willow run and all that yeah you know?
0: people when you come to the purple rose i will tell you that you will hear about redemption and hope, that real things happen to real people. And when we began this talk today with Jeff, we talked about the soul being ripped out of our society because we didn't have the performing arts. Jeff tried valiantly with streaming his singing. That had to be a weird experience without having an audience in front of you. Yeah, it's like shooting a movie. It really wasn't that big a reach. But you couldn't hear anybody laughing. But or not laughing. No, but it it
1: became more intimate. I did, we did, uh, we did the four, we did 77 live streams over the nine months. And uh, tonight you're playing Sheboygan, tomorrow you're playing Topeka, and then Thursday night you're in Alaska. I mean, it's just the routing you could never do if you were in a, you know, in a car trying to get there or plane. So I enjoyed it. It was like, it was like a medium close up in a movie. You get to pull them in, whether you're on the Schubert stage on Broadway or even a, the Purple Rose with 150 seats, the performance is still to some degree going out, going to them. The trick is to get them to to pull them into you, which the Purple Rose, we, we work on that. That's that's our kind of approach. But also it's film acting. You don't go to the camera. You you try to pull them into you into you and and. And that's just the little trick of filmmaking. So to put a guitar in my hand and look at a camera here, and then here's another one there, I'm playing to one person who's really interested. That's the trick. And and I, I tended to enjoy it because there was no travel. I could walk over to the recording studio. I did it with my two boys, and uh, I enjoyed it. I hope to, I get to do that
0: that more. I hope that doesn't go away. It's too convenient. Yeah, well, I look, there's parts of the world like we're talking right now going to be able to put this up on our YouTube channel. There's going to be more meetings that are done absent travel. As you know, that was something I was in the very early stages of about remote working, that there is that need to see people in 3D, that the beginning of the mental health crisis we're just beginning to see. You know, I wonder about child development when the only faces they could see smiling at them were in their own homes. And I think it's gonna be a long time before we unwrap all of this. Mm -hmm. And I hope that those people like you who think about this and write songs about it and write scripts about it and try to reach into our humanness for all this thing that we've experienced and try to boil that down into 90 minutes or two hours is a formidable challenge. Jeff, this has been a great conversation, and I I do appreciate you being here. This is Rich Helpy, your host of The Common Bridge, with actor, playwright, singer, songwriter, Jeff Daniels, star of stage and screen and television. Great career. Hope that those of you that have the means and the interest can get to New York to see To Kill a Mockingbird. And please register for our podcast and YouTube on richardhelpy.com or on your favorite podcast channel, please rate us. Rate us high if you would, please. This is Rich Helpy with our special guest today, Jeff Daniels, signing off on the Common Bridge. You have been listening to Richard Helpy's Common Bridge podcast, recording and post-production provided by Stunt3 Multimedia. All rights are reserved by Richard Helpy. For more information, visit richardhelpy.com.